0: Hello and welcome to the ANA Marketing Futures podcast. Proud member of the ANA Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Burbridge. Marketing research is a vital tool in any marketer's kit, and today's guest has created a research firm unlike any other. Dwayne Veron, founder of Media Science, has invested every penny of profit back into the business. Creating a company that rivals and often surpasses the amount of research being done by top universities around the world. In total, the team at Media Science has authored more than 100 academic publications, a hundred academic publications—a staggering amount for a non-academic institution. Dwayne explained the role neuroscience plays in his research, discussed the company's latest venture, Heart Connect, and shared some fascinating facts about one of his favorite subjects: Chicago crime boss Al Capone. Let's start the show. All right, everyone, we are back in the Ana Marketing Futures Podcast virtual studio with Dr. Dwayne Varon, the founder and CEO of Media Science. Dwayne, how you doing today?
1: It's great to be here.
0: (laughs) It is phenomenal to have you, and thank you, thank you for taking an hour out of your time to uh, chop it up with us about a lot of stuff. I'm I'm excited to dive in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, but first, I want to just kind of set a baseline. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how your journey led you to founding Media Science.
1: <laughs> well, once upon a time, I was an academic, um, and uh, the research that I was doing was focused on more direct measurement of human emotion as it relates to media and advertising encounters. So the the issue here, Michael, is that people generally fundamentally lack access to their own emotional journeys. So when you ask a person how they feel about something, what they're giving you is the rational interpretation of what they think they must be feeling, which is actually not the same thing. And so much of the research that we do around media and advertising really wants to get at those emotional layers. So, you know, if you can't rely on what people tell you, then what do you do? So, a lot of the research that I did focused on more direct measurement of that through physiological measures, galvanic skin response, heart rate, you know, eye tracking, um, analysis of facial muscle movement, uh, you know, and and an EEG and the like. Um, I had a research center very successful. The other thing that we were doing in my research was we were really focusing on media innovation. Um, you know, as TV was becoming digital, we recognized that there would be lots of new ad models in particular, and we felt that the uh, discipline needed to understand what these were and what their limitations might be. So we, uh, you know, began building this phenomenal research center where we were analyzing this. The project that I led was a project called Beyond 30 Seconds, which said, okay, uh, the 30 second commercial will still be there, but what other ad models will be there? And that was a consortium driven um, research project, which was funded by directly by industry and many US TV networks and global brands were sponsors of that research, including a number of Disney entities. So everybody saw the type of research we were doing and found it really exciting. And so uh, on 2008 one day I got a call from the good folks at Disney who, you know, ABC and ESPN which are Disney owned were both uh, some of our constituents. And and they said, Dwayne, in four days we've got our upfront, and we're going to announce a lab just like yours, doing research just like the research that you're doing. You're the only person that we can find who really has the background necessary to run that. So we have four days to negotiate a deal with you. I said, look, guys, I don't even have a lawyer. Said, <laughs> well, well, when the mouse get a calls, lawyer.
0: when the mouse calls, you gotta you gotta answer. That's them. right.
1: So originally the Disney lab, I said, look, I can't be your employee. It would have to be an independent business. Um, And I had a long list of demands, which they agreed to. They said, we only have one condition. You have to be exclusive to Disney. And so what started as the Disney Media and Advertising Lab was actually exclusive to Disney. And that was the case for our first five years as a company. Um, After five years, we came out of our exclusivity provision and we grew. And so media science really evolved out out of those origins. And it's just been a phenomenal exciting journey um since then so that was that that was way back in may of 2008 so all these years later now, um, you know, we continue to grow and, and it's, it's it's an exciting journey.
0: That's super cool. I didn't even know the whole backstory of it. I didn't. Uh, <laughs> that's really, really cool. Um, and it seems like those moments in your life of like, we have 96 hours. Do you think we can make this happen? I feel like that's a recurring theme uh, throughout the, the, you know, experiences media science has had through the years, which we will well, touch I, on. Oh, please.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. We definitely... Um, embrace uh, possibilities. So I think that's definitely part of our style.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So you touched on it a little bit, but I want to go into this of what makes media science a unique research company? Uh, Because when we were talking, um, it really did, a few things really jumped out to me. Where the approach, the baseline approach, you know, that first step of a thousand miles was a little bit different. Can you uh, explain that to our listeners?
1: Yeah, I I think there are a few things that make us different. Um, I think the biggest thing that makes us different when you look back, you know, looking backwards at our our journey, um, that, you know, if you look at the past decade of TV advertising research, every major innovation in our industry was first tested by media science. And, and I don't even mean by a couple of days. I mean, like, in some cases, many years before anybody else did it. So media science really has been a trailblazer in terms of testing um, for innovation. And, and when you look at it and you ask the question, how is it that one company, you know, dominates the innovation space so strongly, I think there are a lot of things. One is, you know, we have a lot of in-house capabilities that a traditional research house wouldn't have, you know, we have our own video editors, we have our own software engineers, you know, we build the prototypes for things that don't yet exist, so that we can test what potential effect they might have. And I think we have the imagination in terms of how to grapple with the research design that's necessary um, around innovation. So we have a lot of very particular qualities that come together for the innovation. So that's definitely one thing. Um, the second thing is, I think that um, you know that that uh, I come to media science really from an academic background, and we have a very academic culture at media science. So, for example, we publish research, which is very unusual for a uh, a research firm. It's normal for a university, but very uh, very unusual, and it's important uh, because it speaks to. Our transparency as a company—we put our methods up to the scrutiny of peer review, and that's something. Generally, in industry, people tend to be black box, um, and you don't really often know what you're getting. And you know, it's it's somewhat accidental, but the volume of research that we are putting out there has been substantial. So recently, there was a um, a review of the past decade of you know published. Advertising research in top-tier journals, I ended up ranking seventh in the world. <laughs> wow. In terms of the volume of publications, which was accidental in a way. And, and what was really remarkable is that we discovered that if media science was a university, it would rank 25th in the world. It, it's beating out, you know, power institutions, you know, like Stanford and UCLA and all these other universities. Um, so that, that's just, a, uh, you know, it's not what we do, but just this, this commitment that we've had to continue. And, and that just means that there's a certain kind of integrity and credibility around the research that we do, and particularly around the neuro, you know, around bringing neuroscience to, to the media and marketing equation. I think that's been an area that we've really championed. Um, and pioneered. Um, so those are uh, both examples of, you know, I think things that make media science very different.
0: I'm glad you left off where you did because I'd like to speak a little bit more about consumer neuroscience before we move on. Um, I know you touched on it, but there's a quote I love to uh, bring out. I believe it's David Ogilvy, but I found it on the internet, so it could be Gandhi. Who knows? Uh, But the quote is that uh, a customer will never say what they think and they will never do what they say. So how using biometrics and other tools of neuromarketing are we getting to the bottom of how people genuinely react to media and messaging?
1: Well, one of the things that's also maybe somewhat different about media science is we're not committed to, we're not evangelists for one method. So people who do neuromarketing often, you know, uh, that's the, they set up their shingle around neuromarketing and that's what they do. And for us, neuromarketing is as cool and powerful as it is. It's just another tool in our repertoire. Um, you know, we believe that, um, you know, a sales objective is too big. You have to translate sales objectives into communication objectives. So you are looking with your communication to achieve certain things. And we believe that for each of those objectives, you should have the best-in-class measures against how you deliver against that objective. So, you know, you want your ad to be funny. It's not the only purpose of the ad. It's just one objective, maybe to get attention, Um, but you want your ad to be funny. We know through our research that the best-in-class way of measuring for that is using facial expression analysis you know, you want to know if something's funny, look at whether people are smiling, you know, whether you can see the lifting of the lips when, when people are watching um, your ad. And, and we can define very precise thresholds to talk about the level of funny that something is. So we're not dependent upon whether people say it's funny. We're actually able to now precisely measure the level of humor that an ad is delivering. And so we have a, a, a large number of tools available at our disposal, and even within those tools, a large number of specific algorithms. So for example, you know, with comedy, uh, with humor, there's not one kind of humor, there's different kind of humor. One kind of humor is a set payoff structure where you know, for uh, most of the commercial, it's actually gonna be tense. There's tension building. And then you have the release that happens in this funny moment at the end, right? The algorithms that we use to measure that kind of humor are very different from a running gag where, you know, you have an exchange back and forth. So in one, we're looking for a combination of electrodermal activity or galvanic skin response, which measures that wind up, that tension building part of the ad, and then the release with our facial expression analysis. So it's just an example that you you ultimately need the best algorithms, you know, the best measures for your very, very, very specific kinds of objectives.
0: That's fantastic. Um, And I love that you broke it down because I think this is beyond a neuroscience, uh, neuromarketing issue, but it's like, you can't just say, oh, did this, is this going to drive sales? You know what I mean? We really wish you could, we wish that could just be the answer, but it's about breaking down the journey, and what do you want this specific piece of media to do? Uh, I just love that. I think that you know a lot of times you take you can look at a scientist or an academic's approach and apply it to more you know disciplined marketing. And I think that's just a great example.
1: Well, I, I think there's a lot in that, uh, you know, Michael. first, um, any brand has a strategy with its messaging. How do you know your strategy's right? I mean, maybe you've got a great strategy. Maybe it's a horrible strategy. Um, so part of what you need to know, before you can know whether your strategy is right or not, you have to know whether you're delivering to that strategy. It might be that you're actually not even effectively delivering that strategy. So you have to break the strategy into its components and then measure for those components so that you know in the first place whether you're actually delivering against that well or not. But then there's another thing as well, even for each of those objectives, those objectives are kind of like an output, if you will, at the end. And it's typically how we measure you know, in the industry is looking at some overall aggregate measure of what the ad impact was. But that's limited as well, because it's very unlikely that all the moving parts are moving in the same direction. So you not only need an output metric, but you need the input metrics. You need to know what happened during the journey. And the problem that we have as an industry is we don't generally have continuous measures of the ad response. We just have an aggregate at the end. The only real kind of like continuous measure we have is dial testing, which of course has its own limitations. So neuro is so much more powerful than say dial testing because you're getting second by second, I mean actually millisecond by millisecond data of how the respondent is actually processing the ad so that if you have a key event or a key moment, you can actually understand the effect at that point in time, and not just the effect overall. It could be that you had a great ad, but you had one moment which wasn't working well, or vice versa. It could be that overall it may not have worked well, but there was something that was brilliant. I mean, you need to break things down into their moving parts. And we don't typically have the ability to do that with the kinds of methods we've used historically. It's one of, it's another one of the reasons why these new measures are so powerful. They give us second by second data, not just overall aggregate level data. Uh,
0: So we uh, had an earlier discussion. You shared a great quote with me. uh, and I just want to bring it out and let you talk about it. Um, At media science, we jump off a cliff confident there's a net below us. What do you mean by that?
1: (laughs) So you know this uh capacity that i was talking about to do innovation research right you're constantly dealing with something that hasn't been done before you don't have comforting uh you know established uh, paths that you can walk down you know it's it's a, it's a it's a journey of true discovery and um we have a really good culture at media science in terms of embracing that uncertainty, um, we're not intimidated by that. Um, we run to 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 embrace it, and we're excited by it because we know we're going to, you know, conquer it, and we know we're going to come out, and we're we're going to have new capabilities as a result. So um, when new employees join, that's, there's often a little bit of uh, of disorientation because they're like, well what what if it doesn't work you know what if we do this and it doesn't work we're like oh look don't worry about it it's going to work you know and there and it was actually one of my employees that told me they said well you know it's like you're just jumping off a cliff and i'm like yeah we're jumping off a cliff confident that there's a net that's going to appear below us <laughs> and it always has it always has we have never encountered and we have encountered whopper challenges in our history. We've never encountered a a problem that was too great for us to to surpass. Um, You know, let let me just give you a few examples, uh, you know, to to go back. Um, One of the things that we did, gosh, many years ago, I I don't even remember what year it was, Uh, to the best of my knowledge, we were first in the market to do it, though, and we were doing ads, uh, we were doing research on ads in social media platforms like you know, Twitter and Facebook. And the methodology of the day was that you'd create a mock experience. So obviously, you know, the nature of this content is that it's highly dynamic. You know, People are looking at content of posts from their friends and their cousins and all that. And so the methodology of the day was to record a feed And then tell people, okay, so look at this feed and just imagine that you're the person who, you know, who'd be receiving this. And then you would see a test ad that was say edited into that feed. Well, that really bothered us. It bothered us because, you know, we thought if we were doing TV research, you know, we do a lot of work around how ad environments how how program environments affect an ad you know the differences between seeing an ad in news versus comedy or whatever we're like we wouldn't say the same thing in tv research we wouldn't say don't worry about the context you know let's just give you one context and pretend that that's everything we said if we're going to do this we have to test within the platform you know we have to figure out how to create a method of inserting our test ads into people's real feeds and that was you know Impossible. I mean, the social media platforms themselves couldn't do it at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like when we, you know, we talked to them, they couldn't do it. So we figured out a way to do it. We, we built these tools that we could embed that would allow us to basically hijack the ad inventory and put our own ad in for inventory in people's real feeds um, so that we could test them. And, you know, again, that's the benefit of having top class software engineers in your team because you can dream something and you can say, this is the way that it should be done, and then you can make it happen.
0: Uh, let's talk World Cup for a second because I I need our listeners to hear this story. Uh, it's a phenomenal bit of honest-to-goodness trailblazing uh, under pretty crazy circumstances, um, I'll just let you take it from there.
1: <laughs> sure. So we talked about this in the prep call, uh, Michael. You know, it was one of, another one of those examples of jumping off a cliff uh, and 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 being confident that the net would pop up below you. So the 2010 World Cup, you know, ESPN was of course one of our biggest clients, and um, you know they um, needed to understand what 3D. Would do for them, you know, like they they were broadcasting. They were going to broadcast the games in 3D, and there was an expectation that if 3D took off, that they might be doing a lot of broadcasting in 3D, and so they needed to understand it, um, and and not just understand it in terms of things like what impact it would have for the program and for the ad. One of the big questions was: was there a serious health risk associated mm-hmm. with 3D? So, for example, um, you know, one of the biggest potential risks is that when you're watching um, 3D, normally for depth perception your eyes are converging and diverging to perceive, you know, the distance that an object is situated. So you're using a combination of this kind of like angular triangulation to kind of like figure out where something is. But you're also using some visual cues like whether an object is bigger or smaller. But what happens with 3D is you can't change the converging and divergence of your eyes. Because if you do, the image will go out of focus. The TV will Mm -hmm. go out of focus. So your body is saying converge or diverge, and you have to fight that instinct. So could that reduce people's real depth perception, for example? That's a risk. And if that's a risk, of course, ESPN doesn't want to be on the end of that class action lawsuit. (laughs) Or, Or there was the potential for nausea, right? I mean, there could also be, you know, a class action lawsuit because people would say, you know, it's nausea inducing or something like that. So we needed to get to a lot of things and quickly. So um, the World Cup was coming out and we had a mission to, to test during the World Cup to, to answer all these kinds of questions. There was no literature. The literature was very poor at the time. You know, People hadn't, didn't have access to 3D TV. So how could you test it? It was probably all, I remember all coming
0: from 3D TV producers who were like, "This is great. You should just this is great."
1: great. <laughs> yeah, so so there was not a lot of academic literature around right. it yet. Right. So the question was, let's test this, and um, you know, even so, the World Cup was going to be broadcast in 3D. But like a week before the broadcast, the TV still hadn't turned up, in 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 and you know at your local Best Buy like like the like it was it was really to the day you know and in fact a week before they even changed the broadcast standard so it was just all nuts like a crazy time now we have to figure out first of all how to get this signal in our building you know and and what that's going to look like and, and but but also how do we test for all these things you know how do you do eye tracking if you have to do eye tracking for 3D you know like these are not things that had You know off the shelf solutions yet we would have to invent them and even the transmission of the signal we did not want to be dependent on the signal that was being transmitted so we made a decision to get our own feed direct out of bristol so we had our own fiber connection to bristol which of course in those days was wildly expensive and very complex so we literally created our own broadcast studio within media science taking this feed and retransmitting it throughout our building But to do that, we had a million boxes and we had all these ESPN engineers who were helping us, you know, build this thing without any 3D TVs yet to test on even (laughs) (laughs) waiting for these 3D TVs to arrive. Right. So we built this infrastructure and and just a few days before the the first game, they had a test match. And so we got our first chance to kind of like see how our infrastructure would work. And we have all this stuff set up and we see, oh, my God, we've got a problem. We've got audio hum in our signal. What is wrong? We're working with the ESPN engineers, box by box, trying to locate and isolate the sound of the sound. We spent half a day on it until we finally discovered it's the Vuvuzela. <laughs> it was the sound of those little trumpets that all the fans were doing oh in the South goodness. African stadium. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't know about the Vuvuzela. Nobody did, now, nobody what did. What was amazing, Yeah, that's right. What was amazing about the research, though, was in that one month of the World Cup, we did over 3,000 hours of testing. We had people come in for watching a full day of games. That was three games back to back. We had people come every day and watch for a whole week. You know, We had all kinds of different experiments running. People got a full eye exam before and after the experiment so that we could measure their stereopsis, their depth perception. We didn't want them driving out our driveway and having an accident because they they couldn't see the car in front of them. We needed to make sure it was safe as well. (laughs) So we did all this testing. We found that the health risks were actually, at least for adults who we tested on, Um, that they were not actually an issue, that people didn't lose their stereopsis, it didn't suffer, that there was no nausea, unlike a 3D movie. The reason nausea wasn't an issue for 3D TV was because you have visual cues in the room that tell you that the world is not moving. So you kind of like counteract that, that nausea effect. Great research.
0: I mean, let's actually go right into it with how you create an organization where you get every, like we're making a broadcast studio. Everybody's like, all right, let's go. Um, how did it become capable of these kind of things?
1: You know, looking back, it's, it's, it's amazing because you look back now, you know, at the journey and you say, well, how did we get here? And, and, and what was it that did it? Um, one of those decisions that I made from day one. Which really proved to be instrumental, not only to the culture of the innovation, but also to the culture of the integrity that I talked about. One of those decisions was a decision that I made on day one to plow all of our profit back into the company. So we have no shareholders. You know, we have, uh, we're not, we're not in the business of maximizing profit. We're in the business of maximizing discovery. And so from day one, and in fact, for the first decade of media science, um, I didn't actually take a salary. Uh, I had my academic salary, which was a very generous academic salary I might qualify, but I was happy with my academic salary. And so I didn't even take it. It was only when I retired from academic life in 2015 that you know, I had to kind of switch in. And even my salary at, at media science is modest. There are a number of our employees who make more than I do. Um, so it's never been about the money for me. Um, But that has consequences to your culture of innovation and it has consequences to your culture of integrity. And I didn't realize it at the time. It wasn't the reason I did it. But if you are constantly plowing back what you make into the company, what does that mean? It means that you grow your capacity. So we can hire more software engineers. We can buy more infrastructure. Media Sciences Labs are the best labs in the world, second to none. Nobody comes close to our labs, and it's because of the level of investment that is made in those labs. Um, because that's that's part of, of of what motivates us. It's that you know if we you know we're not. It's not that we are non-profit. We're not a nonprofit. We are a for-profit kind of organization. It's just the profits that we make just get plowed back into the organization, which means that we develop better and better capacity, capabilities, tools uh, constantly. So we're constantly getting better. And again, I, I talked about, it's not just that it, it contributes to your culture of, of innovation. It also contributes to your culture of integrity because, because we are not motivated by profit maximization. It means that we can do things the right way without the pressure of worrying about the consequences to our bottom line. So, for example, if we have results that do not tell a favorable story for a normal organization, going back to the client and saying, oh, you know, uh, the results weren't good, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on the organization to try to make the story good. Mm -hmm. We're in the truth business, we're not in the truth in in the business of of sugarcoating it. You know, if, if there's a bad story, We want to tell that story, and we can do that without fear of financial retribution, because we're not about maximizing profit. So it's it's very interesting to see kind of like all the benefits that were associated with that, that I hadn't actually anticipated all those years ago when we made that decision, Um, but it's been great for the culture of the company.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can just, it's a different level of motivation. It's not just like, oh, if I do really well, I might get this bonus. Like, that's a one-two, that's transactional. You know, if we nail this, who knows what we're going to be in the position? Like, I think that's incredible. I think being able to see the fruits of your labor as a person, as an organization, uh, that's got to be a hell of a motivator.
1: Well, and a lot of people are truly motivated by that sense of wanting to have an impact on the world, Um, and you know, you 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 can think of that at different, in small ways, not you know, not like just in huge, you know, bringing world peace or something, but you know, we all like to see the fruits of our work have some effect, some impact, and I think our team really gets a lot of gratification out of feeling like you know we make a difference. Um, So we 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 love what we do. We love our journey of discovery and. And we love the challenges that 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 make that happen.
0: That's so cool. That's so well. One of the newest developments that your team came up with, kind of, well, I'll let you tell the story. Uh, tell us a little bit about your latest development, Hark Connect, and how it came to fruition.
1: Yeah. So Hark Connect is uh, a new venture for us. Uh, it's it's a it's a startup within Media Science. Um, so it's a separate business unit, and it's basically us making software tools available to the market for the qualitative research industry. So for focus groups, for interviews, for UX, um, a revolutionary product, definitely, you know, the best, the most revolutionary kind of like product in the qual space. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about how that came to be, because it is a reflection of that culture. So, um, you know, we obviously do these, you know, neurometric measures and, um, you know, we, do this, we do a lot of work for TV networks. Uh, a lot of that, of course, is advertising, but some of it's also program-related. So for example, we test pilots or we test existing shows and try to figure out how to make them better. You know, so there's program research that we do. Um, the normal methods that we do that with is we have, say, 70 people in our labs who are wired up with these sensors, and we're looking at their second-by-second second reaction. So, you know, sometimes the clients at our lab with us and they're looking at the data and getting a sense of what's happening with their pilot. And a lot of these clients, these TV network clients would come to us and say, look, this is great, we love this, but could we take some of these people at the end of your experiment and do a focus group with them? And, you know, we have a focus group infrastructure in our building as well. So we're like, sure, of course, you're welcome to go ahead and, they would, and we would facilitate they're supplying their own moderators. You know, they're doing the research, but they're doing it within our space. And um, as they did it, we would see the software that they were using. So they were doing these focus groups and they would have software so that, you know, their uh, their uh, uh, partners, their, their the other employees could see it in another city, you know, maybe in New York, they could see the, the, the sessions and stuff. And we look at this software, you know, this focus group software, and we're like, holy cow, this is so primitive. <laughs> this is so 1990s. I mean, most of it was just <laughs> Adobe Connect and it was just running with a little layer, a superficial layer on top of Adobe Connect. We were like, oh my God, we could do better for you here. And they said, really? We were like, yeah, 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 yeah. So we just cobbled together something and we put it there and, and the clients went nuts. They were like, oh my God, this is so much better than what we've been using and stuff. And we we're like, oh, you need to bring it to market. And we're like, well, you know, that's an interesting idea. So we spent about three years developing Heart Connect, because if we were going to bring a product to market, we thought, well, you know, we should do it our way, which is we should look at all of the different constituents and understand their needs and build the product to gratify those needs. So we did research with moderators, with, you know, end clients, with respondents, you know, um, with the... uh, the, the the facilities. Um, we looked at everybody's needs, and we conceived Heart Connect from the ground up, and we built it. Now, we launched it literally a month before the pandemic, and it was originally built as an in-person product. And then, of course, the pandemic happened, so we had to go back to the drawing board and rebuild it. And we made a decision, like we said, we don't want to be tied to one Platform. So we want it to work with every platform. So we made a lot of big decisions. What's so revolutionary about Heart Connect is that um, it has an enormous amount of AI built into it. So that when you're watching your session, you know, you have uh, an assistant. We call her Ava. Uh, Ava is an AI engine that we've built. And Ava does live transcription, she transcribes it in real time. You have closed caption, it's, in, it's, it's almost instant. It's amazing how Crazy. fast it is. So when people are talking, you see it, it does live translation. You can choose the language. You can choose into one of over 60 languages. It's doing that in real time. It's giving you the transcript instantly at the end of the session. Um, but also, it's got AI features. So, for example, you can tell Ava, you know, that there are certain keywords in advance to look for. So if they talk about your competitor, Ava will flag that. You'll see a flag pop up. They just mentioned your competitor. It will flag that for the post uh, exposure stuff for the post analysis as well. Um, it does sentiment analysis. So, if somebody's saying something positive, it flags that as positive, negative. Um, and then at the end of the session, um, you can almost instantly extract the insight. So, normally, if you think about what happens in, in this kind of research it takes hours for you to go through and review the tapes and pull out the extract you know the extracts that you want and all that here with with uh, with heart connect you do it almost instantly and everything that heart connect is today which is just so revolutionary and so far ahead of kind of like the existing tools that have been in the market but everything about it today is nothing what's what's really exciting is all the stuff still to come because we know what our product our product roadmap is. And what we're doing is we're taking more and more of the things that we do at Media Science and we're actually making it accessible to the market through Heart Connect. So there will be more and more of the emotional detection features that will be built in that we'll be telling you and that will help with the auto extraction at the end. So Heart Connect has been a whole... Revolution for us. Um, and we think of it that way. We think of ourselves both at Media Science and Heart Connect as a movement rather than as a company. Um, so it's exciting, exciting stuff.
0: Sounds like it, man. I mean, <clears throat> Media Science giving birth to a startup sounds very like something you'd expect, but I just can't wait to see what you guys cobble up because you have a free, a couple free minutes next. You know what I mean? It's just wild that this all came from a, no, oh, I could do something better for you uh it's very cool
1: well and 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 you are right um heart connect is the first of the products that we're rolling out that way we actually have a lot of products i mean of course when you do this research you discover a lot we use that to our own benefit you know um for example one of the other ventures that we've also recently launched is something we call stream pulse and stream pulse is our own private version of netflix it's our own ott (laughs) channel that we run and we do it just for research purposes, but this has been great for clients like, you know, HBO Max for Hulu. We can create not only their platforms but competitor platforms as well, so that if they need to see how their product stacks up to a competitor, you know, we have the ability to test that on our platform, which is our own private OTT platform. And there are more and more tools that we'll be rolling out over, over the years uh, as we continue to kind of like discover things ourselves. So, so it was a new idea that we had about kind of bringing these things to market, but it's actually been really exciting and it's been great for the culture of the company as well.
0: All right, Dwayne, we're taking the car. We're making a hard left turn. Uh, this has been an amazing podcast and we're talking about neuroscience. We're talking about the path to purchase and like understanding everything. We're throwing that all out the window now. Everybody, I hope you've taken your notes. I hope you've learned this. I hope you've gathered all of the wonderful things that Media Science and Heart Connect are doing. Because now we gotta talk about a fascination you have with a certain prohibition era Chicago-based gangster and businessman. <laughs> if you didn't think we were gonna be talking about this, sorely mistaken, let let our listeners know what the heck I'm talking about. <laughs>
1: So recently, I purchased Al Capone's house in Chicago. So you are probably making reference. I mean, obviously. You're I hope that's the only
0: prohibitionary Chicago. <laughs> <land gangster. laughs> um,
1: it was it was a, a remarkable find. Um, when we opened our Chicago lab, um, I uh, began doing some background research on, on Chicago I wanted to know more about, you know, the community that we were coming into. So I, you know, there were two things that I fell in love with, with Chicago. One is Chicago architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know the story, I mean, the, the modern high rise was born in Chicago. Our uh, lab in Chicago, we own our, 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 our space in Chicago and it's historic in its own right. It's, it's, it's the last kind of like of the Chicago school movement, which is, you know, mm-hmm. this very particular period of architecture in Chicago. So I, I love Chicago architecture. And of course, Chicago history is second to none. There is no city in the world that is more interesting than Chicago in terms of its history. I mean, it's just a, a fascinating history. There's so many layers that make the history of Chicago just incredible, starting in um you know the early 19th century with a population of like a few hundred people you know by the end of that century becoming the second city in america just an incredible story um and of course you know the story of chicago uh you know one of the most exciting chapters in that story is the story of al capone so this opportunity for me to purchase al capone's house was this opportunity to bring these two passions together my love for chicago history and my love for uh, Chicago architecture. People don't know how much resistance this house has actually had. It's a very controversial house. Um, In fact, uh, this will surprise you, Michael, there are only four properties in the United States, which by law cannot be on the National Historic Register. The White House, the US Supreme Court building, the US Capitol building, and Al Capone's house. (laughs) There was such a fear of this becoming a shrine that they actually passed a law (laughs) banning it from being on the National Historic Register. The other three are because of the separation of powers. So you've got a different motivation there for those three. I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. Now, it's a very average house. You know, it's part of the whole Capone story is that his purchase of this house was the fulfillment of the family dream that they have arrived. They've made it when they, when they purchase this. He's very young. You know, uh, he buys the house. It's a middle-class house. It's not like a, a fancy house. Um, but he continues living in that house, uh, you know, throughout the, the the peak years of his success. And it's really only towards the end of that period that he then also has a second home, which was in Miami, which just last week they announced is going to be demolished, very sad. Oh, wow. So this, this house of his in Chicago is kind of like the last real thing you know, remnant that we have of, of of Capone. And and Capone is a really interesting person. People, you know, don't know the Capone story. They think they do, but they really don't know the Capone story. It's one of the most fascinating stories because this is a man who literally has the entire universe stacked up against him. Everybody in the world is trying to bring Capone down. He has, of course, the federal government. He's got the the city government. He's got the Chicago elite, who, by the way, privately funded the, the world's first CSI lab just specifically to get Capone, you know, he has the mafia. People think Capone's the mafia. He wasn't the mafia. He was a competitor to the mafia. He's got the mafia. He's got competing gangs like, you know, like the Bugs Moran gang trying to bring him down. I mean, everybody is trying to bring Capone down. And in the end, the way that they got him was actually illegal. Uh, There was a retrial of his uh, tax evasion case, and the evidence they used was tainted, the ways they went, they rigged the jury, I mean it was a rigged case, so they couldn't even bring him down legitimately, so his story is a fascinating story. And the impact that Capone has on on everybody's day-to-day life is surreal. You would not know and realize all the ways that Capone's influence affects your day-to-day life. Let me give you a few examples. Please do the use, by, the use by date on milk cartons, a Capone invention. <laughs> At the end of the Prohibition era, Capone decided to transition out of beer because beer was no longer going to be profitable. What was profitable? Milk. He wanted to transition to milk because he had all this infrastructure, like glass-lined trucks mm-hmm. and things like that. So milk was a more profitable liquid. To go into the problem was the milk industry had a very well organized cartel he tried intimidating the milk industry they didn't respond they installed machine gun turrets at their headquarters you know they hired an army of guards to protect them so they wouldn't be intimidated so what he did is he got the patent rights for the only technology that could print directly on a milk bottle And he persuaded the city to pass a law requiring a use-by date so that he could break into the milk industry. Um, Music. You know, all music that we think of today in America, you know, all popular music, finds its origins in jazz. How did jazz take off? So jazz started in New Orleans, but it didn't rise in New Orleans. It rose in Chicago. How did it rise in Chicago? It rose in Chicago because Capone was the first to allow black musicians to play in white clubs. So people like Louis Armstrong are playing in a, in a Capone speakeasy, right? So Capone was instrumental. He was the patron of the rise of jazz. So yes, he definitely has this criminal element and there are aspects of that, which you know, of course are, are horrible, but he's also got these contributions. And so I have been fascinated with, uh, with Capone and You know, I am working on a documentary project of the renovation of the house, which is a fascinating story, how we're renovating this house. Um, You know, we're working with uh, the Capone family in terms of of rediscovering what it was like originally so that we can restore it. And there is also a, a Broadway musical that's in the works. So there are a lot of fun little angles. It's a hobby. It's a side project for sure, but it's a lot of fun.
0: That's awesome. And I better be invited to the preview. I'm, that's all I'm saying, putting <laughs> it out there early. Uh, but yeah, Capone is just the most uh, fiercely American story. If you really understand the country's history and not you know, rah, rah, like a fiercely American story of somebody who carved out something because he had a dream and got there, you know, by hook or by crook, I guess, quite literally, um, but that's just so cool. And yeah, I couldn't agree with you more about Chicago in general, Chicago file myself. So let's move on. We ask all of our guests uh, a series of questions. So let's start because we just like hearing smart people's opinions on this. We want more, more of these POVs out into the world. Duane, give me your thoughts on diversity, equity, and inclusion.
1: Well, um, you know, th- this is something that has, has been a passion of mine throughout my, throughout my life. I mean, it's something that as a, a young person, you know, uh, w- you know, I, I, I worked very hard when I was in college. I was a, a co-founder of a, a group that we ended up calling the Institute for the Healing of Racism. And we dealt a lot with, you know, the kinds of, of, of pressures that people feel, um, not only uh the people who are the immediate victims but we have a strong belief that that for perpetrators it's not the person that they want to be so how can we help people be the people that they want to be i think that's what's so inspiring about the martin luther king story you know it's not just that he did something for black america he did something for white america he made white america better and and we need to understand it in that context as well i think that the 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 key and the foundation to understanding diversity is to understand it's a benefit. If everybody thinks the same, the range of solutions that you have for any problem are gonna be much more limited. We as a society, we as a company, you know, we as an organization, you know, whoever we are, we are better when we have that diversity because it, 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 it expands our capacity to look at things from multiple angles. So there's no question that you know, that, that diversity is a laudable goal not only because it has a, a social justice element to it, but because it actually delivers dividends, we actually become better as a consequence.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it is the future. It is the future, not not in a cliche ha 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 way, but it is the the businesses that will thrive, the societies that will thrive, the people that will thrive, uh, will be the ones that inv- that embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's just it.
1: And and know? it's it's part of the story. Uh, you know, I mean. The story of America is a complex story. And it's got, you know, like the Capone story, you can have, you know, good and bad kind of like coexisting. And we have that in our story. But there's no question that if you look to our strengths as a people, you know, a big source of our strength is that diversity. It's that embracing of immigrants that, you know, ultimately was instrumental in our our rise and in our continued thriving as a nation. And so, um, you know, that's not to say that we don't have ugly parts to our history as well. But definitely, if you look at the source of our strength, our strength as a people, um, in part stems from our diversity.
0: Mm-hmm. The first thing I can remember being taught about America was that it was a melting pot. That's one of my first educational, like, you know, social, sci- you know what I mean, when they're talking about it as a like, melting pot was something in grade school that it was instilled to me. So yeah, that is honestly at the, the core. And the, the you know, the parts of this country that are great are the ones that are reflected in that, that early melting pot and the continual diversification of the country. All right, Dr. Varong, this next question gets a lot of folks. I'm not sure it'll get you, but this is, here comes the big guns. Are you ready?
1: You're making me nervous. You're making me nervous, Michael. That is
0: absolutely the intention right now. Uh, if I had biometrics, I'd be able to, uh, confirm that, but I'm going to take your word
1: for it. My galvanic skin response has gone up considerably. Wayne,
0: <laughs> what is your favorite album of all time and why?
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> that is a stumper. Uh, no, it's an easy question for me. Um, uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, Saturday Night Fever, sorry, Saturday Night Fever, mm. um, I remember, you know, I was I was uh, in high school, maybe junior high, I don't know, high school, junior high, kind of fourteen. I think I was fourteen at the time. gives you gives away my age, um, and I remember when that album came out, and I don't even know how many times I heard it over and over and over. I mean, it was just revolutionary, you know. And 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 we'd go to parties and we'd listen to that those songs over and over. I mean, it was it was just uh, it was just transformational, kind of like and. Uh, just a huge impact I mean lots of other songs you know if I was in the in the 60s I might have said you know Sergeant Pepper's uh, Lonely Hearts Club Clubland um, you know I mean there are there are great great pieces but at the end of the day it kind of like situates in your life yeah. and in a key moment in your life and so in that moment of my coming of age you know it was it was Saturday Night Fever and so it just had that profound impact for me as I was growing up if you will.
0: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. I always get into like your favorite thing is not necessarily what you think the best thing in the world of that. That's right, that's right.
1: That's right. It was impactful for me. Yeah.
0: A hundred percent. So uh, let's bring this up to the present. Is there something you're listening to now, be it an artist, a song, a podcast, maybe a book you're reading uh, what what's revving your engines these days?
1: Wow. It's revving my engine these days. That's a good question. Um. You know, it's a horrible thing to say, and I'm truly sorry that I'm saying this, but um, <laughs> now I'm it, nervous. it's the music that we're writing for the, um, the Capone musical. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry about that.
0: I'm a musician. I listen to my own stuff all the time. You have no, nothing to do with it. Well, I, I,
1: we have this one song. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a music writer. What I've done is uh, I've grappled with the question: How can I write music without knowing how to write music? And the way that I've done it for my music, I, I can't write music, but I can write mean lyrics, really good lyrics. Hmm. So what I've done is I've taken existing songs, and um, you know, stripped out the uh, the vocals out of the existing songs so that I just have a music bed, and then I've rewritten the song with lyrics, and then eventually somebody will rewrite the music. So it won't be that it goes with the, the music there, but this allows me to write the music, you know, with, uh, with the lyrics kind of like as driving it, and then eventually the music will get rewritten. And there's this one song in particular, obviously I can't, can't go into detail on it, but I listen to that song a thousand times a day. It's really powerful. Um, it's a great song. It tells a story, a really powerful story, um, and, um, and and it, and and it, it just works. It's hypnotic because you know you, you're you're saying it after you're done listening to it. You're saying it, so so it's 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 one of those songs that I think is just going to be the rage when when it comes out.
0: Well, I cannot wait to hear it, my friend. I cannot wait to hear it, um, Duane, Before we let you go, um, if somebody wants to check out more of media science or Heart Connect stuff, what's the easiest way to get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, our websites. We have um, mediascience.com, so that's our main media science website. Harkconnect.com. I know these aren't original titles; <laughs> they work <laughs> very. Yeah, that's easy to easier to find that way. Um, anyway, mediascience.com and harkconnect.com. Of course, I'm on LinkedIn as well. That that's where I'm most active. That's where, if I'm posting things and stuff, it's usually in LinkedIn.
0: Very cool. Very cool, Dr. Dwayne Vuran. Thank you so, so much for stopping by the Marketing Futures podcast.
1: This was tons of fun, Michael. You know, you, you took me in directions that I, I would not have thought I would have gone, but but it was certainly a fun journey along the way.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Marketing Futures podcast. Have an idea for a topic or guest for a future episode? Shoot us a note at net. Be sure to subscribe to the Futures Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're looking to get smart on the future, point your browsers to ana.net slash futures.